foes, they're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before, been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say code war, we say code pink. Go pink for freedom, go pink for peace. Revolution. I'm Olivia Danucci of Code Pink. Welcome to our Code Pink radio show presented by WBAI 99.5 FM in NYC, WPFW 89.3 FM in Washington, D.C., KPFT 90.1 FM in Houston, KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, and many other community radio stations like Western Mass Community Broadcasting, WMCBLP. 107.9 FM. We are also on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Check us out at our website, www.codepink.org backslash radio, where you will find all our episodes from episode one to our most recent. In this part of the U.S., 
summer is coming to an end and Code Pink is wrapping up our summer of peace where we had actions and events all over the country. We had people talking with moviegoers who were seeing Oppenheimer. We had peace potlucks and book talks for peace in Ukraine. We marched for peace in Korea, flyered at farmers markets, libraries and community centers, um, exposing the cost of war and the trillion dollar Pentagon budget. And we're bringing this momentum with us to the streets of New York City for the March to End Fossil Fuels and the International Day of Peace at the UN on September 17th and 21st. This summer was the hottest on record and endless wars continue to ravage communities and ecosystems across the world. We'll be talking today with folks about how important it is to have an anti-militarism lens in climate activism and the role of arts in movement spaces. We're asking all of our listeners to join us in the streets in New York City on September 17th for the March to End Fossil Fuels. And you can check out our website at codepink.org backslash NYC Peace March. And to stick around on the 21st for the International Day of Peace, where we'll be having two events in New York City as well. I'm here with Drew Hudson of Beyond Extreme Energy, among many other groups. Drew is one of the co-organizers of the Anti-Militarism Hub with me for the March to End Fossil Fuels in New York in September ahead of the Climate Ambition Summit at the UN. Um, so welcome, Drew. Thanks for being in conversation with me. I'm looking forward to being with you in a couple of weeks. Um, can you let the audience know um, a little bit more about the march, the action surrounding it, and why bringing anti-militarism into the climate space is so important? Absolutely. Uh, well, thanks for having me on uh, today to talk about the, the upcoming march and the mobilizations around it. Um, so looking forward to seeing you and lots of friends there as well. Um, so I think, you know, one of the reasons this is really important, um, the, the whole march uh, to end fossil fuels is being organized around this United Nations summit, um, which is called a climate ambition summit. And one of the big missing links in climate ambition for decades, really, but certainly since the passage of the Paris Climate Agreement, um, has been military emissions and military spending. Um, I think, you know, most of the listeners of your podcast know that uh, war and militarism are huge drivers of climate change. They're also one of the big blind spots in the climate movement. Under the Paris Climate Agreement, no national country, uh, no nation state, uh, is required to disclose the emissions of its military sector. And that includes the United States, which is both the biggest historic global warming polluter, um, and who has by far the biggest military in the world, creating the absolute hugest amount of emissions in the world. It's probably the number one source of global warming pollution in the world is the U.S. military, but we literally don't know because there's no tracking, there's no record keeping, they're not required to disclose any of that, let alone come up with a plan when President Biden talks about his ambition to reduce global warming pollution 30% by 2050 or 100% by 2050, you know, to net zero emissions all those goals do not exclude a huge asterisk or a big elephant, as we like to say, uh, which is the Pentagon or the military emissions uh, in that, um, which are simply not tracked. They're not uh, required to reduce over time as part of the U.S.'s commitment to Paris or other climate agreements. And so that's why it's, it's a hugely important deal to bring that message to the Climate Ambition Summit uh, and to the streets of New York City in the days uh, before to make sure that President Biden gets the message and that world leaders get the message that uh, we'll no longer as citizens of the world, uh, peoples of the world uh, who are focused on climate change and saving the world from this uh, huge global emergency called climate change, um, that we will no longer allow the military industrial complex to go on getting away with not being part of the solution. 
uh, and being such a huge part of the problem. So we, we need to call them in. Uh, we need to call attention to this particular part of the problem. And we need lots of folks marching with us uh, on the 17th uh, and between now and then uh, to help bring attention to this part of the problem. Yeah, thank you for that. It's exciting to move towards something that you know, we're hoping to get tens of thousands of people into the streets. And I think in the in this country, people remember, um, like in the anti-militarism space, how many thousands of people went out against the war in Iraq. Um, mm -hmm. And then in the summer of 2020, how many people went out in the streets um, for the movement of Black Lives um, against police brutality. Um, and, and since then, there have been there has been continued protests in this country and there's been continued pressure but there hasn't been the type of mass mobilizations to meet the time right we are under the warmest every summer is the is the coolest summer we'll have it seems to be is in that the the climate crisis continues to really um spiral out of control we're seeing this in hawaii um we're seeing this in parts of the global south you know pakistan the pakistan floods that seem decades ago like in this terms of like perpetual doom news cycle um but we know that pakistan suffered under the war on terror and so these compounding issues of endless wars and the climate crisis are so intertwined and that they fuel each other um and that they can they 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 perpetuate the injustices that are already existing, whether that is um, racial, economic, um, gender, or um, disability justice. All of these things are 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 used then in these like big systemic issues to just continue to make those neglected folks and vulnerable communities even more susceptible to to devastation. Um, so I think. Um, what these marches do well is they try to bring in frontline communities from across the country and sometimes across the world to, to be there for them. Um, but I see this as an educational moment for people within the climate movement itself, because like you said, the elephant in the room, and if you all march with us in the streets in November, we'll have a giant elephant <laughs> to, to <laughs> symbolize that. Um, but before we go out and educate everyday people around um, the role of militarism in the climate crisis, I think it's really essential that we do that with among organizers and amongst the people that we're marching with. So what do you think are tools, um, educational tools or ways in which we can bridge um, two seemingly maybe like siloed movements that are very, very much intertwined? How can we build and bridge those um, those, those gaps or or there's missing links. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it's a huge part of the work right now. Um, you know, both the the anti-war, anti-militarism space has a uh, fantastic history and is is perhaps one of the more successful movements in the context of U.S. organizing history at being intersectional. Um, you know, we look. You were mentioning the uh, mobilizations against the war in Iraq, and if you look even farther back to the mobilizations against the war in Vietnam, um, have always had a really strong intersectional angle where we were able to see that the people being recruited to fight and die in wars are also the people being oppressed uh, by the governments that they are being drafted or compelled to serve uh, and protect, um, and that the police forces, the militarized uh, ways that we control the population through police and, and armed uh, civil society, um, you know, are also part of the oppression of those same people. And so, um, 
in the climate movement, I think we are unfortunately newer to the idea of intersectionality, but it is very core um, to what we do uh, on the climate movement these days. Um, and as you mentioned, you know, a big part of the, the march in September um, and a lot of the, the recent big climate marches um, since the pandemic, uh, we've been sort of coming back uh, like a lot of movements um, back into the streets, back into community in person. Um, where we can see each other uh, across a street or a, a sidewalk as allies. Um, and a big part of that uh, has been bringing frontline folks to the fore. And that'll be a big part of the September mobilization as well. I know we have folks joining us from particularly, you know, U.S. impacted communities since this is happening on uh, U.S. soil in New York. Uh, but we'll have folks there from Alaska and the Arctic Circle. We'll have folks there from the Gulf Coast, um, which is a particularly targeted sacrifice zone. We'll have folks there from uh, West Virginia and Virginia, which is its own sacrifice zone in Appalachia, um, just recently with the Mountain Valley Pipeline, which I know you've been hanging out with some of those folks, and they'll be up in New York as well. Um, so I think there are good attempts being made to, to bring frontline voices to the fore. Um, and I think it's really important that we we understand as a climate movement and as a peace or anti-militarism movement that all of our fights are intersectional. There, there is no liberation without all of us getting free um, and that we are all fighting the same common enemy. Um, one of the things uh, Beyond Extreme Energy and a lot of the groups who've, who've been working on this uh, with Code Pink and others for a number of years uh, often say is almost all warriors these days are wars over fossil fuels and fossil fuels are also the driving force behind war. Um, literally, you know, when you think about jet fuel, you think about the propulsion that's uh, driving rockets and things, that's all fossil fuel. And almost all of the wars that have been fought in the last 20 years have had an element of control, uh, geopolitical control over fossil fuel interests. So the obvious one is uh, the war happening right now in Ukraine has everything to do with fossil fuel supply between Russia and Europe, who's in control of that. Um, and there are wonderful both Ukrainian activists and European activists who are are clear in saying the way to get past this is not to win a war. It's not to kill more people. It's to end fossil fuels. And that is exactly what our march is about, um, is ending the era of fossil fuels, removing that as a driving force for war and chaos around the world, uh, which has already been the cause of so much conflict um, and is already so solvable. This is the, the other uh, really heartbreaking part, but also heartening part about it is we have the solutions to replace fossil fuels right now. Uh, we know that we could power the entire U.S. economy with renewable energy. European Union is well on its way to making the shift from relying on gas and other fossil fuels that they've traditionally imported uh, from Russia and other places to being uh, supplied by renewable energy and electric power. Um, those are the shifts that we need to make um, to make a more peaceful world and a more safe world and also to defeat climate change and to uh, get us past the current moment of emergency. So um, I think all these fights really are linked. I think more people are seeing it now. Um, you know, the, the war in Ukraine uh, unfortunately dramatizes and makes clear that conflict. But the immediate response from too many uh, leaders was to lean in and say, oh, good, now we can be the supplier of both military arms and fossil fuels. Let's have the U.S. do that instead of Russia do that. And it's the, we're saying over and over again, no, no, the way to get past war, to end war and, and uh, conflict is not to fuel more of it, it's to stop it. Um, and that's very much what the march is about. And that's very much what our mobilization will be about uh, this September at the United Nations. Yeah, and I I think to all of your points and, and in how these, we, in the US, wars and foreign policy 
by the media is looked at as like an over there problem and that we have enough to worry about at home. But I think that it's very much here and in our, in, in our backyards, I was just in West Virginia and hearing from frontline communities, someone saying that West Virginia is owned by extractive industries and someone from um, community movement builders who was based in Atlanta, but was speaking, talking about how all extractive industries provide military capital and how that we, the military industrial complex is in bed with the fossil fuel industry and this constant addiction to greed and exploitation and money, um, they can't have one without the other. And so I think that the people at the top are afraid that if people would know about how um, these can, about these connections and about how things right here in our neighborhoods are affected by the military industrial complex. That it's not like, an over there problem. But I want to get back to something that we talked about of the budget, because when you talk in numbers and when you talk about money, you talk about what should be funded instead, that to me is something that resonates with a lot of people. When I was in Atlanta talking about the $100 million um, militarized police facility, people who, um, whether or not they were for more police or not, they thought that that amount of money should go to housing, to livable wages, to food. And then when you think about almost a trillion dollars of the Pentagon budget, I mean, you can, anyone can tell you a gazillion ideas, right? We have no, we can't even imagine how much a trillion is. Um, and yet it's, the Pentagon has never passed an audit. Um, you know, the NDAA passes every year with flying colors where something like Build Back Better, which was such a compromise and so watered down, took ages and ages and ages, and, and, and it passed in whatever form that it was able to. So the, the, the way in which we can fund, you know, more weapons to Ukraine or more um, F-35s being tested that don't work or nuclear bombs creating just another existential crisis um, being worked on or resources thrown at it, we know that that money makes the weapons manufacturers richer, you know, over 50% of it, of the military budget goes to military contractors. So when we talk about a just transition of how we can fund um, a climate justice and the, the very world in which you were saying that we have the solutions, we're just not putting them into practice because they don't make as much money. But could you talk about some of where this money could go that is going to the Pentagon budget and what are some of like the tangible next steps or maybe wins that a just transition could lead to? Yeah, and I, uh, yeah, that's a great question. And I think, you know, the the best thing about the Inflation Reduction Act, there's a lot of problems, as you say, with the bill, but it it shows the idea of what's possible with a relatively small amount of money. I remember, as you say, the Pentagon budget is dramatically bigger than all of the spending on climate change and renewable energy and tax credits for electric cars and all that stuff that's in the Inflation Reduction Act. Um, and, you know, this was a, is genuinely a, a sort of country changing bill uh, that was passed, but the amount of money is, it's a drop in the bucket compared to what we spend on war and weapons, including on some of the, you know, a couple, you know, the F-35 and the literal battleship and all these things that are just ridiculous boondoggles and everyone knows it. Um, and if we would just stop throwing money away on those, we could put it towards really good stuff. So a couple of things that we've identified really early on and that people have been pushing the Biden administration to invest more in. Um, they're doing some on this, but they they could do a lot more. 
Um, one is the original idea of the uh, Inflation Reduction Act, as you said, was originally called the Build Back Better Act. And one of the big ideas we've been pushing in there is that as part of disaster relief, um, when FEMA comes in to rebuild a community after a hurricane or a wildfire or other things like that, uh, tornadoes, all kinds of climate-fueled weather disasters, um, that they should be building things back better than they were before. And part of that can include but doesn't right now, rebuilding the infrastructure to be sustainable, local, renewably powered, and democratically controlled. So what that would look like for years, uh, looking back at the uh, hurricane disaster in Puerto Rico, we've been pushing to rebuild Puerto Rico's electric grid to be powered by local distributed solar energy and battery systems. That would put the power closer to the people who need it. And if not when, or when, not if, there's another big storm uh, like Maria and power gets knocked out to the island's grid, each individual community would be more self-sustaining and better able to power itself, better able to recover from that disaster because they can keep things like refrigerators running to keep people's medication cold that they need or keep uh, breathing assistance available to folks who need that. Um, so we've been pushing for that in Puerto Rico. And instead, what they've done is they built a massive new gas-fired power plant to replace an oil-fired power plant, and they're importing that gas from the mainland United States. Um, so that's an example of not building back better. And now when we look at what's happening with Maui and the recovery from the fires, we have the exact same opportunity. But again, the Biden administration is not doing the right stuff. They're not putting the th right things in place. Um, so big part we've been pushing for with a, a climate emergency declaration and some of these big uh, federal responses to emergencies is to really uh, build in that build back better ethos from the start so that uh, right from the get go, every time the federal government is responding to a national disaster, they're doing it in a way that makes communities more sustainable, more renewable energy powered, and also that makes them more resilient to future climate shocks. Because we know that this is gonna keep happening. Even if we end fossil fuel use tomorrow, which we're not going to do, um, you know, these will still be, we will still have big storms. We will still have big fires. We will still need the ability to respond to those kind of disasters. Um, and so getting the federal response to to match that moment um, to really rise to the occasion of the climate emergency and respond. Like if Pearl Harbor were bombed again, everyone would expect the U.S. military to respond. But when there's a big fire that destroys a community and kills hundreds of people in Hawaii, we don't respond in the same way. We don't have that overwhelming sense of the U.S. government will come in, we will fix everything, we will make it better, and we will take care of people after that the way that we would if it was a matter of going and fighting a war. Um, and we need to change that mindset in the federal government. And so those are the kind of things that where reducing the Pentagon budget doesn't just make more money available to do stuff. It actually changes the way that we approach the problem. Instead of trying to respond to the climate emergency as if it was a national security emergency and we can sort of shoot our way out of it or bomb our way out of it, instead responding with genuine humanitarian energy democracy things that make people more powerful and that also give them better and more zero tools to rebuild from those kind of disasters. Yeah, I'm so glad that you brought this up because a lot of what the military is doing right now is using greenwashing. Like we right. will confront the climate crisis by doing exactly that. I mean, putting solar panels on 800 military bases right now is not is not the way forward and not planning to um, yeah, like escalate things when 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 people are already suffering. And I think this this um, 
it's such a good point of just like this care economy, or we'll call it a local peace economy versus a war economy. Um, when I was in Cuba um, for May Day last year, um, we they talked about when Cuba was hit by a climate disaster and that there were zero casualties and that because they had neighborhood and community basis approach for decision making that they had just built off of, you know, for years, like in a true democratic way, they then were able to alert their neighbors about evacuation or put a place in, in thing to get water and uh, necessities to them right away versus here you have to fill out a form, you have to call, you have to apply, you have to find all the things and you're waiting years and years. And there's already been three other climate disasters like the case in, in Texas. Folks are going through this, you know, multiple times a year. And yeah. so I think that that I, as much as the, there's money for the military budget and we can talk about where the money should go instead and um, our partners at the National Priority Project do this really well and I'll kind of read through some of those in a little bit, but it's just completely changing the narrative around care and around social services and that, you know, we're the wealthiest country in the world. We have the highest incarceration rate. We have way too many unhoused folks. We still don't have universal health care. We still don't have food that's actually edible and not just, you know, injected by chemicals. And right. if we really cared about national security, we would address all of those things. And, you know, the largest crisis, which is the, the climate crisis. And and I think we're talking about the president and what has been happening in, in, in this past year, just the, the continued aggression towards um amping up military bases around China right now and the Philippines are getting four more and um, it's just devastating the local communities, the land um, and the the resources to perpetuate more aggression and more violence where we should be learning from indigenous folks in uh, the Philippines who protect biodiversity and have the solutions that we should be using to move forward, um, not literally tearing it away. Um, so I I could talk with you about this um, all day, um, but I, and, and I hope our, our, our listeners and viewers are interested and wanting to continue, not just the conversation, but to join us in the streets. Um, and so we will be out there on September 17th in New York City for the March to End Fossil Fuels part of the anti-militarism hub and for those of you at home you can um join the anti-militarism hub by going to codepink.org backslash nyc peace march um, and sign up to join us so i want to thank you again drew um to into our listeners you're listening to code pink radio coming to you through pacifica radios wpfw in washington dc wbai in new york city KPFT in Houston and KPFK 90.7 FM Los Angeles, Los Angeles. We will be back after this break uh, with Cesar Maxit, um, who is a DC art activist. Um, and we're looking forward to chatting with him.
by Resistance Revival Chorus, where Love Angel skates into town spreading a ripple effect of kindness, donating to mutual aid collection, bringing cheer to a family in isolation, and celebrating nurses doing essential work for the community during the COVID shutdowns. This song displays acts of care that are examples of a world outside of the exploitative war, war economy and the world we can be building instead. Welcome back. I'm Olivia Genucci at Code Pink. You are listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WBAI and NYC, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Today, I am talking about how climate activism has an anti-militarism lens in order to really address the um, the climate crisis, which is fueled by militarism and fueled by the U.S. Pentagon and the military-industrial complex. And I'm now going to talk with a good friend of mine, Cesar Maxit, who is a longtime activist and artist um, based in Washington, D.C., with a family from Argentina. And he brings in a extremely creative, um, long-time portfolio of working in movement spaces um, and he's going to share with us his experience in the past couple of years. And he's going to start off by saying, why and how are you still doing this after so long, Cesar? Good morning, Olivia. Thanks. Um, I got started, let's see, well, I studied architecture in school and my sort of interest was um, environmental, like green architecture, they call it sustainable design. And so as I sort of study, was kind of learning and researching and studying how to be a better sort of green architect, I started understanding how environmental movements are connected to like human rights movements and how like all these different issues are interconnected. And and I was volunteering like outside of my architecture job um, then with different groups on these different issues and just seeing how that's something that I could bring to the table to support a lot of the groups on the issues that I cared about was like creating art. That's how it started. Yeah, I think so often people are wondering how do we plug in to, um, to get involved more and in making a difference, right? These overarching systems of oppression or systemic injustices that are rooted in capitalism, militarism, um, racism and um, exploitation, those isms can seem very large. Um, and, you know, whether people can cook for the movement, make art, um, lead chants, help organize big protests or do things locally or internationally, I think that we're always trying to let folks know that there are so many ways to be involved. Um, and for me, when I was just talking with our previous guests around in climate spaces, how to have this like anti-militarism lens when doing um, this type of work, knowing that we're up against two really huge existential threats, the military industrial complex and the fossil fuel industry um, being these puppets of these compounding crises. Um, so when I think of art and artists, they're able to convey messages that are beyond words, that are beyond statistics, that are beyond numbers. Um, so if you can give us some examples of 
some art that you've created um, that has made messages resonate with people, um, whether they're walking by or whether they're um, they're they're interacting with it. Um, that maybe that's in some of your experiences that you can share um, a couple of those examples. Um, yeah. So, well, one thought sort of uh, around what you were saying, how, how people can like plug in. Um, I think you don't even have to like come with a specific skill set in mind or something like you've seen when we're organizing, when we're creating art and like sometimes just showing up is how you can support. Like you just find out who's working on the issues you care about and just show up. <laughs> like your presence yeah. is going to be helpful and like um, you're going to learn about how you can fit in at some point. Um, so yeah, I don't know, examples of art. I mean, right now I'm like, we're in this room where I have this flag that I helped create um, for this uh, migrant rights movement. Um, it was around on DocuBus. Uh, these group of undocumented youth were going to travel around the country doing workshops and protests and uh, culminating like at the end at the Democratic National Convention. And so when people started decorating the bus from like the bus, they, um, the artists started painting butterflies, monarch butterflies. And so I was like, okay, that is a, that's a cool symbol. That is something that we can use um, that resonates with me. It's clearly resonating with other folks. And so then I saw another artist create a poster with a butterfly on it, Ernesto Yerena. Um, and he made a butterfly poster. Then like I designed a butterfly poster. Then Fabiana saw my butterfly and she designed a butterfly poster. Uh, hers was like, migration is beautiful. And so I just thought that that was an interesting sort of like phenomenon where we would like see artists their movement artists like reflecting sort of like all catching on to like this uh, grassroots symbolism, this like icon uh, of a butterfly. And then for my poster, I ended up like doing more research into like pre-Columbian sort of traditional symbols, icons of butterflies. And so I used those around the poster and then just came up with like a sort of the phrasing around it says, um, all humans have a right to migrate, all migrants have human rights. Uh, and then it's all framed around like this idea of like making it look like a movie poster almost, um, like it's promoting this thing. Um, so yeah, the butterfly as a symbol for migration, as a symbol for immigrant rights has, um, yeah, then just became, you know, a symbol of a movement and it's been now, replicated in just a million different ways I've seen it um so that's yeah that's an example of like art a symbol sort of like taking shape organically um and the arts using it yeah uh so and then I don't know another example could be the I did like a series of healthcare posters um and they're just like big giant black and white printouts that then I would add some splash of red color. And it was like uh, single payer healthcare originally. And then it was like um, 
Medic, uh, Medicare for all. Uh, so the messaging could change, but the idea that you can put up posters around town and what I want to bring up for these posters is just like how over the next few months, next few years, I started hearing back from people about how how far the message got. Like I'm just putting up a poster on the street that I wanted to put up that on an issue that I cared about. And next thing you know, I see like um I see the posters being referenced on in a Washington Post article about healthcare. I have uh, I meet people at a party in DC where they say, "Oh, I'm an intern in Congress. I work for this Congressperson, and we've seen your posters. We've been joking around about how um, uh, Bernie must be going out late at night putting up posters because who would be doing this?" And um, and a friend of mine that worked in the White House for um, he's in the White House sometimes. Uh, he was the uh, worked for the National Endowment of the Arts. Um, he said there was conversations in the White House that he was a part of where people were talking about how, like, look, on the street, people are talking about this. This is an issue that people care about. And how it was just, so I was like, wow, like, you put this up on the street, you don't even know what effect the art will have. But, like, it creates ripples. It creates conversations. It creates, like, it makes people realize, okay, there's this movement happening. There's people interested in this issue. And... It just, uh, you know, you don't always get like what I got there, like feedback where you get to see some of the effects, but um, the effects are there. And I've seen it lots of times um, over the years. And uh, that's why it's like sometimes it's hard, especially these days, modern life. We want to like quantify it and get exact like stats on it. And it's like for some of this art, it's hard to exactly quantify because you don't you don't get that immediate feedback. You don't know um, always, but these days also you can. Sometimes you'll put up posters and be like, oh, wow, there's clearly a movement around this happening because I'm seeing all this art and all these, I'm seeing all these posters. And so it can be a combination, but. Yeah, I think that's a really good point. And just having more dialogue and conversations around these issues, sometimes people are nervous to, are they asking the right questions? Do they know the right terminology? Are they well-educated enough or well-read enough? Whereas art elicits this, you know, if it's an image, people resonate with it because it doesn't, doesn't, it doesn't make people feel like they can't respond to it because they have to like know all the answers. And none of us know all the answers, right? And like why we want to meet people where they are is such an important part of like movement building and to have like something that is more accessible and like attractive to them. Like hearing you talk about like people in the white house um, having these conversations, but then like seeing these um, posters or this art being close to like bus stations where working class people are taking the bus. It's a way for them to also see like these images and these messages that like relate to them. And it's not just this like policy or, things for people who are like in quotes like at the table um so I think that to my point of like using art for political education and like getting our messages out there like you spoke to that um in those varieties of ways um earlier and we were talking about um, building up to September 17th in New York City where there will be the march to end fossil fuels 
Um, that's also a, a couple of days before the International Day of Peace. And so we are excited to bring this like anti-militarism messaging and contingent to the march. And one of the images and props that we have from the Backbone campaign is a giant elephant um, where it's the elephant in the room of the climate crisis is the Pentagon being the biggest polluter. And, you know, as we're planning this, we're talking about, you know, what words will be on the banners? What will we have on our signs? Um, but knowing that the elephant is going to be large and visible and like up, you know, it's it's a dynamic, it's a, it's a giant blow up that it will be something that people in the march will see above them, behind them, in front of them. And just that in of itself, this like giant elephant that symbolizes, okay, the thing that we're not talking about, right, is just a way in which that people will be able to have these conversations as they're marching, as people are going by. And that's a testament to like art being a splash or having the simplicity of it. Um, so I guess I wanted to ask you too, is like, how can artists who create art in their everyday life and, you know, are, we were talking about before how do everyday people get part, in, part of the movement, but how can we activate artists to create art or to use their art in these spaces that can be more political with it or bring more people in to have conversations or make their art be part of, in quotes, like the movement? Well, I would say there's, uh, in a way, I, in my mind, I think about it in two sort of separate things. Like there's art, like the product, like you talked about the elephant, um, that that's going to be a powerful piece for your contingent to march with. But then there's also like the process of the art, like how does the art get made or imagined or produced um, or deployed? And that part is really interesting too, because sometimes a lot of times that's like sort of overlooked and it's like, well, we want, we know we want this product, this thing, this banner. And um, I've encouraged organizers over the years to think about like, well, how does the banner get made? Because uh, art can be used to bring people together. Can, um, you know, we, we've also like talked about how it can be pretty therapeutic. You can like, um, have conversations while you're making art. You can also like get meditative while you're making art. You, um, it, it just brings people together. It's just another moment, another thing that you can do is like, look, uh, our campaign, our group, our movement, we're gonna get together and we're gonna paint this banner. And that has been one of the organizing tools itself is like the making of the art. Um, so I don't remember your question exactly, but I think that was relevant. Well, no, this is totally relevant. And I'm actually glad you said this because I think this is for someone like me who, yeah, has been able to like, as I said earlier, Cesar's my neighbor. So I love coming over to the art studio and while there's being banners made, I will come and just like talk to folks there and just be part of this process. And then other times when the paintbrush is in my hand, it is a meditative process for me. And it is a way in which we can, like as an organizer, dealing with people front facing, talking with a lot of people, um, it's a nonverbal way to also like 
calm my mind, but also contribute and is something that is tangible. Like you are building something that is going to be used like later that you can, that you can see and that being part of that process is important. I think now with a lot of people like printing flyers or printing banners, it's, you're missing that you're missing the process. You're missing that part of bringing people together and it is fun and it sparks, um, conversation and creativity and new ideas. I mean, you and I have had new ideas while making things and while other people are there and you get to know people holistically um, through just, you know, what do you do for fun? What do you like to eat? Like, what are you doing this weekend that isn't going to be seen in the product, right? And I think that process element is such an important piece. Um, but yeah, back to the uh, a question that I, I do have is like, we were talking about everyday people getting involved and like just showing up. But if there are artists who are interested in like being part of these big marches or direct actions or things like, how can they start to be more involved with this? Knowing that like, we need more artists in, in these and we need to make spaces for them to feel that they're like welcomed and supported. Uh, well, yeah, for artists that are interested, I think just reaching out to the organizations that are doing the work that you're interested in um, because I've done over the years, a lot of work with like Empower DC and it was just a matter of like attending meetings and sort of paying attention to like the issue and learning about that and then being able to like take that knowledge that sort of first uh yeah the knowledge that you get onto how to create um yeah so also just plugging in by like just just showing up with art because I mean that's also having I've gotten involved sometimes um I didn't really know the organizers to reach out to you know it's easier nowadays like if you want to plug into New York there's like a website, phone numbers, names listed, you can call these people and they will plug you in. So it's much easier now. So, but I'm just saying I have sometimes just said, well, I know, I think I know something that would be helpful. I'm going to create it and I'm going to go out there with friends and we're going to do it. So um, you want to be respectful. You don't want to do something to throw off the balance or not make it right but um I guess that's part of it is like I tend to not do anything in isolation by myself like before I do any big art I've already talked to at least a dozen people to like make sure I'm not having any blind spots or biases that I'm like reproducing my art or that I'm like yeah just more brains and more um eyeballs help to make sure that yeah you're coming at it in a good way and um the last thing you want to do is hurt <laughs> hurt a campaign that you're trying to help yeah um so that's one technique is like just not working in isolation checking with lots of folks like asking people their opinion like yeah that's and i think that's good advice for artists, but for all of us who want to contribute and um, if, whether you've been doing it for decades or you're just starting, like, yeah, making sure that you're 
you're doing this communally because we know that it's no one person or no one protest or no one piece of art or no one direct action is going to solve any of this. That this is a collective and that if we aren't doing the processes and like carrying those out collectively that yeah then then that's that's key and i think that that's a really good advice as we as we move forward um and i know that you know building up towards a big mobilization like in new york is just part of this and this is a building moment too and so i'm really looking forward to seeing the types of art that is there um, that is built off of, you know, examples and inspiration from artists for decades and that is international um, and that there are also like a lot of like young artists who are, you know, brilliant and bringing their their art into these spaces. So, um, yeah, it was a pleasure to talk with you today and I'm looking forward to what's to come. And for me, like moving moving ahead as we are constantly addressing the doom and gloom in the world, art does give away um, the sense of hope and the sense of like revolutionary optimism and things that are, you know, make the revolution irresistible. Like that kind of mindset, a huge part of that is the art, is the music. Like we were listening to re the resistance revival course earlier that this, um, the flow and the incorporation of music and the arts um, is so important. So thank you again, Cesar. Um, you can check out Cesar's work um, here at his Instagram, which is? Uh, it's just my name without vowels. So C-S-R-M-X-T. Awesome. And you can join us next month in New York City for the March to End Fossil Fuels on September 17th and for the International Day of Peace on September 21st. Thank you for listening to Code Pink Radio presented by WPAI and NYC, WPFW in Washington, D.C., KPFT in Houston, and KPFK 90.7 FM, Los Angeles. Bush and Bin Laden, you think they're foes? They're in business together. Danny Bush knows the Carlisle Group since years before been raking in billions and itching for more. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Code War, we say Code Pink. It's blood for oil, we know there's a link. They say Code War, we say Code Pink. Code Pink for freedom, Code Pink for peace.
code war, we say code pink.